0: LegalizeFreedom.com
1: Greetings and welcome to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we'll be discussing the much misunderstood and sometimes mystifying science of economics. Of money and its role in the current perilous state of the world economy, a dire situation which affects all of us. Our guest today is Alistair MacLeod, who has a background as a stockbroker, banker and economist. Alistair runs financeandeconomics.org, a website dedicated to sound money and demystifying finance and economics. He's also a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation and publishes articles regularly at goldmoney.com. Hello and welcome, Alistair, and thank you for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com.
0: It's my pleasure, Greg. Uh,
1: we're here today uh, to discuss the state of the global economy, uh, which is a rather big subject, but uh, it's something that's basically constantly in the headlines at any given time, but certainly very much since the uh, crash of 08. And starting point for me today is basically that as far as the mainstream media is concerned, uh, that crash was very much something in the past. It's something that's happened, it's been and gone. And yes, there are still some ripple effects being felt. But basically, it's a historical event. But as I see it, um, this is something that's ongoing. It's not over. Uh, the world economy basically blew up uh, towards the end of 08, and the bits of rubble are still dropping out of the sky. I mean, how do you how do you see it as a you know comp- over and done and dusted, or very
0: much still uh, affecting all of us? Well, it's very far from uh, done and dusted and uh, really what it was about, it was the, the whole of the uh, sort of Keynesian paradigm whereby uh, you cheapen the cost of money which leads to um, expanding bank credit, um, putting more money into the system, um, the buildup of debt on the back of that finally shuddered to a halt. And that is a very, very major event. And you're right. It's not just something that was in history and we just move on. No, because we're still dealing with uh, the fallout from the end of really what amounts to, I suppose, nearly 100 years of expanding uh, the quantity of money in the economy without it being fully backed by gold. Well, sorry. sorry, go on.
1: No, I was just um, going to say this is something that a lot of people don't understand. Is that um, you know the, the the sort of monetary paradigm that we have today? They kind of think that's been in place forever, but of course it's uh, relatively recent, as you say, you know, basically a hundred years.
0: Yes. Well, I think. Uh Most people, uh, most historians of money would um, reckon that the founding of the Federal Reserve Board, the American Central Bank, the American Central Bank, um, marks uh, the beginning of the modern era of uh, paper money. Um, America was on the gold standard uh, certainly uh, before the First World War and then after the First World War, uh, she resumed sound money. Um, she actually jacked up interest rates at the time when uh, the post-war depression hit America can you imagine doing that now (laughs) anyway that she jacked up interest rates but the result of that was the reintroduction of sound money uh, did something that the Keynesians just don't understand it actually helped the economy sort itself out and before very long it was recovering and back on track as per normal so you had a recession a very uh, sharp recession, um, which, un- if you like, uh, unwound all the distortions as a result of World War One. Uh, that recession in America lasted no more than about two years. And then, of course, we had the roaring 20s afterwards, which to a large degree was fueled by uh, credit produced by the, central, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Board. And that was the first time the Fed really started to stimulate the 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 economy by uh, producing extra money and encouraging banks to expand um, unbacked credit. Um, So that was really the start, I think, of the modern monetary era. Um, We started a bit earlier than that insofar as uh, Peel's Banking Act of 1844 um, legalized uh, the Bank of England's uh, paper money on the basis it was backed by gold, but it didn't tackle the problem of expanding bank credit. So um, you still had various credit-related crises, such as the over-end Overend gurney uh, crash uh, in the 19th century. You had the bearings crisis in the 19th century. Um, And these crises actually find their echo today i mean the, the the northern rock situation was quite similar to uh, the way the um uh, bank of glasgow went bust um it went bust because the wholesale markets wouldn't provide it with the credit to stay keep going and that was an absolute dead ringer for northern rock um the Overend gurney crisis was uh, similar to what we have in America at the moment. Lots of banks going bust basically because the collateral that they've taken in, uh, in respective loans uh, itself has um, uh, lost value and therefore left the bank exposed and, and um, insolvent. Uh, and then the bearings crisis was actually – I mean that – That, uh, if I recall, was Argentina, and that was the the Bering's bank uh, extending loans towards one country in exactly the same way as banks around Europe have sovereign debt exposure, uh, which is considerably greater than their equity. So, you know, all these problems uh, of expanding bank credit from the 19th century we see happening time and time again. So there's nothing new in what's happening now, but we have unsound money and the the, the pile-up of debt um, really culminating in, in that event, um, as you rightly described it in 2008, and we're still dealing with the fallout. The fallout basically is that mountain of debt is trying hard in the private sector to contract, and as it contracts, um, banks. It's rather like tide going out, you know, it exposes Mm. the rocks, as it were, and uh, the bank's um, uh, balance sheets, uh, when they start contracting, the fact that they're geared uh, 10, 20 times um, the money they actually own in there, their shareholders funds, as it were, um, means that they very rapidly start going insolvent. And that is, is, if you like, the central problem that uh, we face in Europe and America, for that matter, at the moment.
1: Well, putting it in that historical context, then, uh, as many commentators have uh, have commented, um, we could have seen this coming. And in fact, some people did see this coming. Uh, So, you know, there were warnings about uh, the situation um, coming from all over the place. I mean, I remember reading about people sort of saying that they, you know, with the the property market, for example, and the um, uh, the unsound loans that were being made um, to the, you know, in, in, in the US, that was a situation that's been building up for a long time
0: indeed i t- i was very amused you may recall the queen opened um or attended something at the london school of economics and this was just after the 2008 credit crunch and she asked well you know you're all economists why didn't anyone see it coming <laughs> which i thought was a lovely uh, well, it, it put it in a nutshell really it's a well it's a question
1: that people who aren't economists are asking you know sort of a joe public as it were uh, is mystified by these sort of things and of course um, you switch on uh, the mainstream media and it's the same people uh, in, in, in TV and radio studios across the world pontificating on the situation now and uh, prescribing various remedies. And these are the people who didn't see it uh, uh, didn't see it coming.
0: Well, yes, but I think um, I think there is a very good reason for this, Greg. And that is that uh, everyone in the media, um, in the city, uh, in government, um they have studied the economics of Keynes. Um, Mm -hmm. That is what what they have been taught, and it's the economics of interventionism. Uh, That is the fundamental problem behind it all. Uh, The Austrian economists, those who um, follow the writings of uh, von Mises um, and uh, the the various people before him and one or two afterwards, uh, actually could see this coming. It's what von Mises called the ultimate crack-up boom. Um, mm. we're not actually at the crack up boom stage yet, but we're moving there. What von Mises meant by the crack up boom is that if you expand credit, there comes a point where, um, the, if you like the value of the money starts going down and people actually have that final flight into goods. We're not there yet, but if we don't get off this course, there is no doubt that that is where we're going.
1: Oh, I mean, I've already said, I mean, I went in the post office the other day and the woman who was serving me had the gall to suggest that I might t- like to take a look at one of their ices. And uh, I said to her, well, what rate of interest are you offering? And uh, she told me and I said, well, that's less than even the, uh, uh, the official rate of inflation that the government states, which is artificially low anyway. Yeah. And, and I said, I'd be better off just buying a few pallets of dried food. you know, because I'm going to have to buy that in six months of the year anyway. That's going to protect my money. I'm going to lose money if I put it it, with you. Um, So just when you said flight into goods, it reminded me of that thought that, uh, you know, to buy anything that you'll need to use in the future at today's prices is probably a better
0: investment than uh, sticking it in the bank. Oh, indeed. That's right. And I think that there is another way of um, looking at this or tackling this problem, and that is that, The situation we have at the moment uh, is actually destroying people's savings. Mm. Uh, Your illustration of going to the post office is one example of that. Um, But when money is printed and bank credit is expanded, now at the moment bank credit isn't expanding, so what they're doing is they're accelerating the rate of printing to money printing to compensate. The effect basically is to transfer capital value from people's savings to the government and from the government to um, the initial points of distribution. This is why the banking system has so much money, because mm. that is the that, if you like, is the spigot through which all the government-created money goes. And it's, it's it's no wonder that all the bankers are doing so well, and we're all aggrieved about it. Yeah. But the ori- the origin of the problem is government producing money, and transferring uh, the capital value from savers savings towards whatever projects the government thinks is worthy Uh, and um, so the savers are being actually killed Um, we don't have it quite as bad as in some other countries if you look at what's happened in places like greece uh, the banks that have managed to reduce their exposure to greek debt have done so at the expense of domestic savers Because guess what? The domestic savings, pension funds and all the rest of it have been uh, directed uh, by the establishment in Greece to buy Greek debt. And um, since it is all worthless, basically, they're they're, they're bankrupting or sorry, they're impoverishing uh, all their pensioners and, and savers. And um, you, you cannot get any economic recovery, which, which of course, is what the Keynesians want. They say, well, you know, we can grow our way out of these problems if we just have enough money. You cannot uh, have economic recovery without the investment in the capital goods to produce the products uh, and services for tomorrow. And if you destroy all the savings, then the only source of money for uh, uh, if you like acquiring those capital goods uh, is by just printing money and expanding bank debt uh, and um, you know immediately uh, you're building distortions on distortions on distortions, mm-hmm. and you will never ever achieve your objective and this is this is where the whole Keynesian um, concept is beginning to fall over and it's falling over really quite dramatically,
1: yes, yeah, so we say Keynesian it's basically a, a you know a, a way of thinking, a school of economics and the The Austrian school that you referred to is just another completely different, another world away, really. And it's something that's not discussed to the extent that uh, if you were to set it out in front of the average person, they would say, I've never heard of anything like this before. This is like completely alien to me, but what you're telling me about.
0: Well, that's 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 right. Um, But I think we have to draw a distinction between um, Keynesian monetarism uh, and uh, Austrian economic theory. The point about Keynesianism and therefore monetarism, which derives a lot of its assumptions from Keynesian assumptions, is that it's just that, it is all based on assumptions. Uh, And it's interesting, if you uh, read Keynes's actual works, you can see that Um, His starting point is that, uh, you know, the idle rich rentier who lends out his money and doesn't dirty his hands is evil. Uh, The person who is poor, impoverished and works hard is deserving of benefit. Uh, So his starting point effectively is to transfer wealth or resources, national resources, whatever, between uh, the, the, um, the idle rich capitalists to the hard up workers. Um, now, when he came up with this theory, you you have to sort of put it in the context of the 20s and 30s, uh, the sort of laissez-faire free markets of the 19th century, which made Britain and America so incredibly successful, uh, had fallen out of fashion, and they were displaced by communism and national so- socialism or, or um, fascism, if you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you had these sort of Fabians, if I can call it that, um, who uh, didn 't really go into either of those two extreme camps, um, were sick and tired or disillusioned or uh, not emotionally um, suited to appreciate. Uh, lazy affair capitalism. So they sort of found another way. And this was really what Keynesian <clears throat> economics is all about. You start with assumptions and you end up with a sort of an acceptable middle road which justifies government involvement in the basic economy. And the other thing that you you, you have to remember is that in the 20s, um, the social structure from which Keynes Came from was one because he went to Eton. He was his fellow schoolboys were uh, the sons of the landed gentry or the grandsons of the land, landed gentry, um, and typically um, the acceptable careers for the son of a landed gentry. If he was the elder son, he'd probably end up running the estate and um, passing that down <laughs> through the generations. Younger sons either went into the church the army where it would be a fashionable regiment, uh, (laughs) or the civil service. That was acceptable. The idea of a gentleman going into trade becoming a stockbroker was, my goodness me, no, that was um, (laughs) an appalling thought. It just wasn't done. And this is actually why all the the really clever um, Jewish uh, immigrants uh, who ended up in the city founded the big banking houses in the city. because. Uh, You know, our aristocracy were too posh to do it. They didn't want to soil their hands with trade. This Mm. was the background which Keynes came from. His father was a lecturer at Cambridge University. Uh, So he was in the academic. He was in academe, as it were. So it was quite natural for Keynes to be an academic, sort of slightly sort of dilettante type. He was a member of the Bloomsbury set, uh, along with Virginia Woolf and all those people. Um, and he was, um, you know, this was the world he lived in. It wasn't a world which understood commerce, things like prices. You know, um, if I'm a businessman, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, how am I going to make money? I wake up in the morning and think I've got to be able to improve this or improve that. Or so he doesn't understand that at all. Mm. And that's the uh, economics that we've inherited, on in which government today bases all its decisions and it's a tragedy because it is so completely divorced from the real world on the other hand uh, the Austrian school and this is particularly is very accessible for you know if you read the works of von Mises particularly yes. Human action um, and theory of money and credit, uh, which I would say is two of his greatest works, but also he's got other great works i mean socialism was it was, was a very very interesting uh, critique um, and also bureaucracy exactly why bureaucracy uh, were, you know is, is, is a government function it 's not a function of the market it's actually I would recommend anyone to get hold of these these works which yes. you can get which you can get for free on the internet now <clears throat> not quite um and uh but you know the, the point about uh, von mises is that he actually rolled up his sleeves and thought about what is the effect um of supply and demand on prices what's the effect of money what's the effect of interest rate all these things <laughs> he actually puts it into uh, a real working context which you can understand and uh i think throughout this his great discovery was that the thing that really determines what is going to be uh, used in the future and therefore what determines how an economy progresses is the consumer. It is the consumer's choice. He is the person who buys the product or the service and there is absolutely no way that you can extrapolate what the consumer has done in the past to what he's going to do in the future and as soon as you understand that then it makes uh, the whole sort of Keynesian paradigm where you take relationships in the past and you say that because the relationship of prices to money is X and we can come up with a figure which we'll call velocity and we can apply that to derive something else, it's actually totally meaningless because all that is in the past. There is no (coughs) way that... Those statistics of the past can actually tell you what is going to happen in the future. And that's the fundamental difference, I, I think, or one of the fundamental differences between a well-thought-out theory such as uh, the Austrian economic theories uh, and uh, the suppositions and prejudices behind uh, uh, interventionism, if you like, the whole concept of mixed economy, socialism or communism indeed.
1: Yeah, and I would urge anyone listening to this, to, uh, if, if they are unfamiliar with uh, the, the Austrian thinking, to uh, seek out the books you mentioned, because, you know, a light will go on in your head and you'll understand that uh, there is a different way of approaching uh, these matters, and which makes sense in the real world, um, as you said. If we could just rewind uh, slightly or to talking about the crash of 2008, one slightly bizarre um, change in emphasis that I observed was that initially it was all about the banks um you know Lehman brothers and it was constantly talking about the problems with the banks and then suddenly at some point in the media the reporting became all about governments and deficits and government debt and then that was all it was about after that that we've spent too much for too long you know we've lived you know high on the hog and we've got to rein in spending and get the deficit down and it was I was for me it was a bit of a I don't know if you noticed this but it was like when did it become about governments and not about banks
0: well there were two uh, basic reasons uh, why this is so Greg the first is that uh, when banks start falling over um, governments in this modern day and age uh, say that they will stand behind the banks and they will guarantee that depositors get their money back so immediately you start looking at say the relationship between the total capitalization of swiss banks and the gdp of the swiss economy uh, or the total um, uh, balance sheets of the spanish banks and um, the relationship you know how many times larger is that total than the gdp of the spanish economy that's the first thing the second thing is that um, uh, underlying the background to the problems is a contraction in the general level of savings. Savings have been abused and abused. I've already referred to the abuse of savings Mm. by the taxation through inflation, which governments have been very, very happy to do. Um, But there does come a point where um, if you've got a paucity of global savings, then the countries that Um, cannot rescue themselves by printing more money are going to be exposed to the full pricing dynamics of the bond markets and that's essentially what's happened uh, in Europe. Um, They gave away the function of printing money to the ECB and they relied on banks expanding credit uh, in order to finance their various government schemes. When the banking system no longer could do that Uh, You had that sort of change, sudden change in 2008. It meant that the financing for uh, um, European governments then had had to exclusively rely on savings in the private sector. And that just the savings weren't there. The savings were being uh, absorbed elsewhere, um, you know, whether it was going into U.S. treasuries or uh, going into gilts or going into Norwegian kroner or whatever. Uh, the savings were just not there. People were picky. They would look at Greece and say, hmm, I don't really like this. And of course, there comes a point where if interest rates start rising, then uh, the uh, apparent um, uh, financial position of uh, the Greek government just looks worse and worse and worse so the higher the rate goes the less likely you feel to ta- actually take the bait and say well I quite like 20% uh, uh, interest so um, you know the, the whole thing is sort of uh, is, is, is imploded on itself and that is that is entirely logical the first problem was the banks and the second problem then becomes governments themselves and it, it ain't over yet as they say
1: Certainly not. Um, regarding the, the bailouts given to uh, many of the banks, I mean, a lot of people uh, would think there's outrageous sums of money being uh, thrown at banks with no apparent uh, benefit to anyone apart from, well, an elite few. I mean, in America, for example, someone calculated that uh, for the money that they threw at a few banks, it would have been cheaper to give everyone. I can't remember what the exact figure was, but something really significant in the order of maybe 100000 hundred thousand, two hundred thousand $200,000 dollars. And someone reflected on the actual differences would sort have of made to people's lives. Suddenly, the vast majority of Americans don't have mortgages anymore. And if they if they didn't own a house, then they'd have all this money in the bank. I mean, it, it might sound like, oh, yeah, that's just pie in the sky nonsense. But actually, if they if any money ever moved anywhere, which it probably didn't, it was just figures on a screen, it would have been cheaper to bail, to bail out, quote unquote, the American public than it would have been the banks.
0: Well, you can't bail out the American public for the very simple reason that if you did that evenly, you know, sort of the Bernanke helicopter drop, (laughs) prices would rise across the board virtually Mm. immediately because that money would be spent. Um, uh, So, you know, it's it's, it's a no-brainer understanding that one. Uh, Leaking it out through the banking system is uh, very, very confusing for most people. The end result is the same. The problem is that it starts, um, you know, people benefit unevenly. Uh, the helicopter drop, you know, where everybody gets, let's say, a, a rights issue for their dollars. You know, you got, you had one dollar before, you've now got two. Mm. Um, you mm. know, that that sort of thing has an immediate across-the-board effect on 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 the prices of all goods. I mean, you go into the supermarket and you'd find that the price of laboratory paper would have doubled, more or less, within a week. Uh, you know, you can guarantee that, and you can understand why. If, on the other hand, you leak it out through banks, um, then you know the banks are really I mean, that's the way the financial system works for a start. It goes through the banks. Um, but then you, you, you see that, um, you know, the, the bankers are getting nice bonuses. The banks are making nice profits. Well, it figures because they, 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 they um, benefit. They gear themselves up to benefit from uh, the expansion in the quantity of money. That's what bank balance sheets are all about. Um, and we see this it, 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 it hits the economy in stages the first thing that happens is that you find that the prices in London uh, are at a higher level than outside London you find that the prices spread out from there because obviously some of these bankers who get lovely salaries commute <laughs> probably mm-hmm. not very far because actually they work very hard and they work long hours but you find that places like um, you know Kent um, Sussex, surrey <laughs> you know yes, well, wherever that you know any anywhere with within decent commuting distance of of London um you know the prices start rising there. Mm. and and guess what if you want to um, you know buy a uh, buy a house there uh, the price house prices are higher if you want to get any work done on your house from tradesmen um, they charge a higher rate than they do in the West country down here in Devon for example where we're just surrounded by farmers and retired folk <laughs> you know um, and of course from London it spreads out because um, uh, that's the financial center but then you've got a finance center in Edinburgh and mm. uh, it, you know you've, you've you've also got a little bit of a finance center in in places like glasgow certainly in manchester there's a lot of services businesses um tied in with finance so you know those centers um uh, you know they get the benefit of the spread and all this is at the expense of um putting it simply the fixed salary earners the teachers if you like the um the nurses uh, and also the um of the pensioners because if they've got any savings um, the purchasing power of those savings, um, uh, in total, goes down uh, because the interest rate is held down for those say, held down to try and stimulate the economy, as it were. Mm-hmm. Then the savers find that their their interest income also collapses. I mean, they're bit they're hit uh, every way you can imagine. But that's because they're last in the queue. By the time they get to the shops, the prices have already risen.
1: Yes, they, it's always occurred to me. Um, that the an interest rate that is applied to uh, to loans and to savings um, is it, you know it's kind of there's that tension that it benefits one and uh, disbenefits the other and how, how you square that circle uh, you because the, the government's always talking about oh you know prepare for your old age and, and make sure you have a pension and then they'll, on the other hand they're talking about keeping interest rates low for for, for different reasons and uh, there's conflict there.
0: Yeah, well, there is there is conflict, but the only way that this can sensibly be resolved is uh, through sound money, and that is that you uh, you don't print money and you leave the level of interest rates to the market. Take mm. it out of the hands of government. It's actually got nothing to do with government, because all that government ends up doing is is um, uh, pursuing the policies that it wants to pursue, uh, not the policies as Keynes hoped naively um, are in the interests of um, of everybody in the economy because apart from anything else you cannot measure those interests there's no price on those interests you can't can't measure it all politicians do is they respond to pressure groups um and um you know they they are the they and central banks are the last people who should actually be fixing the price of money They they shouldn't be doing it
1: there's a, that's a, a, the issue of central banks is also key because a lot of people, uh, you know, for example, in this country uh, in Britain, um, there's the idea that the, uh, the Bank of England is now is independent and they set interest rates and it's been taken out of the hands of government. But um, a, a lot of central banks is, is, are basically, you know, uh, functions of government anyway.
0: Yes. I mean, the independence is 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 um, a sort of it's independent in the management sense. That's all. But, uh, you know, you, could you really conceive of the Bank of England pursuing monetary policies that would be seriously detrimental to the politicians? No, no, there's no there's no way it's independent. It's, it's, it's a myth.
1: Um, with regard to um, inflation, which we referred to um there's the, 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 the figures that, uh, you know, because you hear it reported almost daily now, it's almost like a pacifier. Oh, well, inflation's not as high as we expected and it's 2% and it's coming down by point whatever. And then there's the, the real world where people observe what they're paying for things and how that's detached from, um, uh, the, you know, the official stated inflation rate. Uh, you observe this, uh, you know, in the States as well. Um, could you perhaps comment uh, on the, you know, official inflation figures and and how they're massaged downwards uh, for political purposes? Well,
0: yes. Um, I mean, they're rubbish. Is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's extraordinary how you have um, an intense activity collecting all these prices and statistical method and all the rest of it. And if you if you get the UK Blue Book. It'll give you a long, long description as to, you know, how the the methodology of getting the prices together and, you know, balancing them and doing this and doing that. Um, It's absolute rubbish. There is no such thing as a general price level. It's actually as simple as that. Uh, This sort of concept of a general price level is something that only comes uh, about on the back of um, fit money. Um, If you have sound money, then... Uh, if people want um, to spend more money on one type of product as opposed to another, then they have to cut back the spending on another product. Um, that's not the world we live in at the moment. What happens is that um, <clears throat> petrol prices go up. Uh, nobody can be denied the use of petrol. So the, uh, if you like, the, the, the demand for it is not going to go down just because the price rises. Simply what happens is that the central bank uh, ensures that there is enough money in the system for us to pay those extra prices. Um, and this idea that you can have a sort of a one uh, statistic fit all price idea um, actually doesn't work in practice. I don't know about you, but, um, you know, the, the current expenditure I do are things like petrol, fuel for the car as it were fuel to heat the house um groceries things like that um i tend not to go out and spend money in the pub like i was when i was a young man <laughs> so we put that one to one side <laughs> um, uh, but you know I, uh, things taxes um they've they've um local authority taxes have not increased by a huge amount recently but on um, you know <laughs> that's that could well happen down the line you had um uh, VAT was was put up by two and a half percent. You know, all I see is that at the end of the day, the amount of money I seem to get through doing my normal everyday things has gone up a hell of a lot. Now mm-hmm. I haven't sat down and worked out what I've um, actually spent it on, but I just know that prices are rising. The purchasing power of my money is falling. It's as simple as that. And measuring it um, by going around and checking the prices. It's actually a waste of time. The only way really to measure it is how much money is there in circulation and how much is it expanded by over the last given period and that'll give you a far more accurate idea of actually what's happening to your money and what is about to happen to your money than you know sort of plowing through supermarket prices and substitution because something's got more expensive And so on and so forth. I mean, um, there's a guy called John Williams who runs ShadowStats. Yeah, yeah, ShadowStats.com. And um, uh, I I don't look at it very closely, but um, he works on the method, uh, the methods uh, of putting these statistics together uh, that were around about 20 or 30 years ago. Um, So he takes out the distortions that have been put in since then. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he ends up saying, well, Working on the old basis, uh, inflation is, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 percent, um, whereas the headline rate in America, you're looking at uh, sort of three or whatever it is. I mean, yeah. it's and deflators on GDP. That's the other thing. You know, the, there there is a government interest in ensuring that the deflator on a GDP is kept as low as possible, because the more you deflate GDP, the less your real figure growth looks like so the whole of the statistical thing is all about trying to prove the case for um, or justifying uh, the case for government intervention uh
1: gdp um <clears throat> uh, basically you know growth um the gross domestic product. sorry uh, i'll come to growth later um a lot of people are also uh, that's part of the, the jargon that's thrown at us Uh, by uh, economic pundits. Um, Perhaps you could say something about, um, something perhaps people don't generally know about GDP and that they should know.
0: Well, um, this is a very, very interesting one. We all uh, assume, and I even get uh, people who understand Austrian economics uh, assuming that uh, GDP, gross domestic product, is actually a measurement of growth of the economy. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's the measurement of the growth of the money that is actually in the economy uh, and the sources of that money are really threefold. Uh, well I mean, if we, if we, if we you know, put to, to one side things like trade deficits and capital f- flows into and out of the economy from abroad. Um, so if you look at a closed economy effectively you've got three sources of that money. One is that the government prints money through the central bank. The second is that the banks expand credit. Uh, on the back of printed money so those are two sources and the third source is there's a huge amount of this uh, money slopping around um, as capital which um, uh, doesn't actually go into economic activity some of it leaks out uh, from capital markets either um, when government sorry when when companies go to the market in order to raise capital or the government issues gilts that takes money which the government then spends in the economy which is fine Um, but there is still a large amount of capital that just goes round and round in circles Um, and uh, it's that is becoming a very important part of the whole dynamics Hmm. of gross domestic product Um, because if you could persuade some of that money to go into uh, economic activity uh, the provision of goods and services um, and the purchasing thereof, then you get an increase in GDP. But it doesn't actually tell you what um, all that money is. GDP is just purely money. It's not an activity. If government expands its uh, spending, for example, that is recorded as an increase in GDP. It's it's nothing to do with GDP. Mm. But You know, this government element in terms of an accounting identity has to be included in the national statistics. Um, I think probably another way of looking at it is if you were, let's say, um, looking at a proposition to buy a company. You would be given the balance sheet of the company. You would look at the balance sheet of the company and you would see assets and you would see, um, you know, plant and equipment and things like that, factories and so on and so forth. Now, um, I have a question. Would you actually take that on its face value and say uh, it looks to me on the basis of this balance sheet that this company is worth a figure which is X. So I'm prepared to offer Y for it. No, you wouldn't. What you would do is you would go out and you would look at those factories. You would look at the lathes and milling machines in those factories and see whether what sort of condition they're really in. Mm. You know what the book value is. You're not interested in the book value. You're interested in the equipment in the factories and the state of those factories as a means of producing something for the future. You know, you can't get that out of a book. You can't get that out of the um, uh, 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 accounts. Um, You you know, really, uh, um, any entrepreneur, any venture capitalist has to go on the ground, boots on the ground and have a look, try and assess the quality of the staff, the quality of the equipment and all the rest of it. That's really what matters. The accounting identity is totally immaterial. And, of course, a lot of uh, uh, people aren't aware that – well, you're
1: alluding to the fact that you know everything's accounted in GDP. That basically uh, things that we would consider not positive are also counted. So if someone gets knocked over by a bus and an ambulance goes out to get them, the economic activity generated by that is counted as well. Uh, when, you, when it's reported in the media, it's kind of like an increase in it is only a good thing, uh, but it could be for all sorts of reasons, many of them destructive and negative, that the figure has gone up.
0: Yes, exactly. And this this was very very noticeable when Gordon Brown was a cha- was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, I remember at the time the city would produce forecasts um, for economic growth, uh, growth of GDP, uh, which were always always turned out to be less than what um, the Chancellor at the budget was able to say he had achieved. Mm. The answer was quite simple: he just spent more than anybody assumed. And of course, yeah. if you spend more, government spending is included in the statistics as um as a positive it is gdp but Mm. actually what he's doing is he is taking money away from the private sector where it is efficiently used and redeploying it in the government sector where there is absolutely no basis of value that can be uh, ascribed to that money, um, and uh, not only that, but um, the money is spent in directions which the politicians want. You know, want it's it's not it's, it. I mean, if if there is a, if there is a satisfaction in the spending, say, on education and uh, roads and um, and health, uh, and uh, you know, and it is wanted by people, it is actually by um, uh, coincidence rather than it cannot be done by any government planning. Government planning does not work. It's simple. And the extreme example of that, of course, we saw with the collapse of communism, which mm. is actually planned economies. Mm. The Chinese are still planning, <laughs> but, but that's a slightly different story. It is. Um, just to uh,
1: do a bit of a 90 degree turn here. Uh, one thing we mentioned earlier, uh, which I was going to come on to was the subject of Greece and just generally what's happening in the Eurozone. Um, I mean, a lot of people, uh, myself included, um, are probably trying to fathom, why Greece? What on earth is going on in that tiny little country that was seemingly minding its own business, albeit in an inefficient manner for such a long time? Why is that the nexus for so much of what's occurring uh, in in the European economy? And, you know, to some extent, the global economy?
0: Well, I think Greece is uh, just an extreme form of what is common throughout the Eurozone, and indeed in other, in, in, in other jurisdictions. Um, uh, for years and years, uh, government has had easy access to money. Remember when they went into the Euro, going into the Euro saved them from bankruptcy. Uh, there was no way they could borrow money in the markets at anything, uh, which um, made any sort of sense. Uh, to the government of the day. So they went into um, the euro, which really meant that uh, when they went into the capital markets to borrow money, um, they were paying a far lower interest rate. They were paying more than, say, um, the Germans were when they issued debt. But there was this sort of implied uh, cross-border guarantee that, um, you know, it's euros and it'll be guaranteed by the whole system. So, yeah, we'll, um, we're happy to take, um, you know, a 5% return on our money lending it to Greece, whereas we would um, expect only, say, 4% from Germany. That was the sort of split that you, that you had. Um, the result of this um, uh, freely available bank credit uh, meant that Greece, as well as all the other countries, um, they dipped into that, and they took a, as much of that credit as they possibly could, uh, and they expanded their spending. They expanded their corruption in many cases. Um, they didn't have to tackle their underlying problems, economic under uh, li- the economic problems. I mean, it's... One of the things that um, has been quoted often over this is that uh, the, the cost of running the Greek railway system is so great it would be cheaper to put everybody in a taxi, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and civil servants and everybody in Greece retiring at something I don't know 50, 55. I mean the whole thing was just spending, um, not share not uh, taxpayers' money because uh, nobody was you know the the tax collection system didn't function properly either, um, but it was just all borrowed money, and if you can borrow money with no responsibility, I mean whoopee, it's party time and that party's now come to an end now, it's, it's sort of fairly spectacular over Greece and of course you've got all the commentary as well, um, how can you actually um, justify taking Germans' <coughs> savings and mm. applying that to propping up um, essentially, a bust economy. I, you know, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, perhaps we can persuade them to be feel guilty uh, <laughs> for their past or whatever. Um, uh, but it just doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I think I think what we see, what we're seeing now, is um, it's it's going to be moving from the economic scene to the political scene. Mm. I think that uh, Greece was the first domino to fall. And the idea that uh, the powers that be have managed to resolve the Greek issue and hopefully create the precedent so that that's not going to be followed by Portugal, Spain, Italy, whatever, Belgium, whatever, um, uh, that is uh, a forlorn hope. Mm. The way they have handled it has actually accelerated the likelihood of um, contagion into other uh, uh, debt markets. And the reason I say that is is very simple. As part of this process, and again, it's, it's completely understandable, uh, government agencies um, lending money to Greece have interposed themselves in the credit chain uh, between uh, the debtor, the Greek government in this case, uh, and the private sector lenders. So, if, let us say, you're a bank and you'd lent money to the Greek government, you suddenly find that you're a junior creditor. Now, what this does is it makes every bank management uh, committee sit up and, and and look at their exposure to European debt and say, "Oh, hold on a minute. We are to use a, an Australian, if you'll excuse me, there's an Australian farming expression which I think sums it up totally. You know, we're sucking on the hind tit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you, as, now that that principle has been established that private sector creditors are last in a queue which is getting longer and longer to mm-hmm. get their money back, you can see that that makes it even harder for Spain and Italy, let alone Portugal and, and, and anyone else, uh, to go out and borrow money from the private sector. It's just not going to happen. So um, the, the pace at which um, these bankrupt governments start falling over, I think is going to quicken as a result of the way they handle Greece. Mm. Uh, and it's not just going to stop with Greece. Okay. So that brings us on to, I think, the next phase of it, uh-huh. And that is a political problem because uh, really what we're saying is that the whole of the political structure itself is at fault, and that is the thing that has got to be demolished. And at some stage, whether you know whether it starts with the Germans or with Finland or Holland or you know someone who's actually got voters' savings on the line here, they're going to say, well, look, you know, uh, we can only go so far and no further we 're out, <laughs> yes, and I think that 's where the problem is going to come, not from um, Spain say um, turning round and um, saying, well, we can 't possibly accept these terms we 're going to leave the the euro i mean that's the, it, I think you can forget that route it just doesn 't make any sense at all, but what does make sense. Is the political disintegration of the whole of the European project? Now that is, I think, a very interesting and it brings a lot of dangers, but potentially a lot of benefits if someone's got the sense to understand how, by uh, removing this source of overregulation and control over the private sector, there is a possibility that we can do something.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, my, my question you partially addressed it was where is this going? So let's um, fast forward. Project, you know, over the next year, next two years. I mean, what the future you've sort of outlined? What, what does that look like in more detail, potentially?
0: Well um it, i i'm afraid there's only one one place it's going to end up and that's von mises's crack up boom mm. um you know is what happened in germany in 1923 uh, people just couldn't get out of their money fast enough and put it into goods um the the way we get there is actually quite simple to understand the first thing that um uh, we can say with absolute certainty is that no bank i mean reasonably is too big to fail hmm. um, and the result is that all banks will be rescued why because they must keep the ATMs going yes. you know the moment you and I go to the hole in the wall and we can't get cash out of the wall then the politicians themselves are dead hmm. so um, that I think is the fundamental priority faced by every central bank with um, you know, whose government is is profligate. Um, they've got to keep the banks banks going above all. That's the number one thing. So this is why the ECB has printed Is it I, I, I've lost count of the trillions of euros i think it's a, it's about 1.2 trillion they've expanded p- f- through the ltro programs they've expanded their balance sheet by something like three trillion and this has gone basically gone into the banks the banks uh, in the in in Euroland, as elsewhere um they don't just rely on deposits from you and me they go out into the wholesale markets um they they, they borrow in those markets and they also borrow by issuing um loans if you mm. like bank loans uh, you know where where uh, they're the, they are the, the, the borrower um, and these things come due after a while I mean most of the bank debt that's financed uh, through uh, medium term notes and all the rest of it uh, has a life of something like five to ten years on it and the result is that quite a lot of that starts suddenly mounting up so um you know the bailout from the central bank has to take account of the fact that not only are depositors taking their money away from European banks um, you know in some cases more more rapidly than in others um but also the banks themselves are having to repay loans, so the money has to be made available for that so we can see that the expansion of money supply just to keep the banking system going mm. is um very very difficult to to put any limit on at all and then you've got the problem that uh, governments themselves are all running massive deficits or if they're not running deficits at the moment they've got so much debt that the cost of refinancing um, is going to mean that they are going to go into deficits And if you look at Italy, for example, Italy runs more or less a balanced budget. But if Italy is faced with interest rates of seven, 8 percent, something like that, then uh, they're going to be um, looking at the wrong end of about five or 6 um, percent in in, on, on the budget deficit. And the more the interest rates go up. Uh, obviously, uh, the more they're in, you know, the more they're in the hole. So uh, you can see that even though the uh, ECB has restricted its money printing so far to supporting the banks, and some of it has leaked out into um, funding uh, government debt, admittedly, which is why the rates have come down in Italy and, and Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the actual funding of these government deficits hasn't, it hasn't started yet, uh, and um, Uh, You know, do governments fall over? No. At the end of the day, uh, the central banks, maybe through supporting the banking system, uh, will come up with the money so these governments don't fall over. So um, we can see the route over which this is going. Now, the reason that interest rates are uh, not high in the US and also in the UK Mm. is because we can ease quantitatively. And that's what we're doing. So the Japanese have done the same. Um, And all that means is you just print money, basically. And the reasons to do it are simple. Um, It's got very little to do with um, uh, trying to encourage businesses to invest and so on, which is the publicly given reason. It's actually got to do with the fact that it costs um, governments um, interest to borrow money and they're all borrowing very hard and if you had higher interest rates then the budget deficits themselves were just was whiz- totally out of control they're out of control as it is with zero rates <laughs> so um, the, the real reasons for um, uh, the central banks printing money is not only to support the banking system but very importantly to support government spending governments haven't started cutting their spending properly yet, I mean even in this country when Osborne stands up and talks about um, um you know trying to sort of correct the profligate past i mean he's not actually cutting spending overall he's just slowing down its rate of growth rate of growth well this and is it yeah yeah, and if interest rates start rising, which they would do the moment the Bank of England stops um Uh, doing quantitative easing programs Uh, under those circumstances you can see that the budget deficit would start rising very very rapidly
1: well with regard to government debt you know we're often especially in the u.s they talk a lot about sort of balancing the budget and what have you but uh, and you know this is what infuriates me about politicians in this country talking about sort of you know getting the deficit down governments run massive deficits uh that's what they do the government deficits do not get paid off, generally speaking, you know, from a layman's perspective. This this just does not happen. Uh, the debt just increases over time. And it's, it's difficult to see where it would end up or maybe it won't end up anywhere. It'll just continue until the end, you know, the end of time. But uh, it's this sort of idea that it's somehow going to be you know, during the Clinton years. Uh, there was some, you know, hoo-ha about sort of balancing the budget. But as far as I remember, it was it was more like they just stopped the rate of increase. Uh, or it wasn't going up anymore or something like that. But the idea of being paid off is just, uh, you
0: know, la-la land. That's right. Um, there is a fundamental difference between um, government spending your money and um, you spending your money. By your money, I mean particularly your savings. Mm-hmm. Um, when the government uh, take, borrows your savings uh, in order to spend, it spends it full stop. Um when a private sector entity, whether it's an individual or a company, borrows money, then um, generally, and you will make sure this is the case because otherwise you wouldn't lend money to that person or that company, generally they will use that money to invest in the business. And by that, I mean that they will acquire capital goods rather than go and spend it in the you know in the restaurants and bars yes um so um and that is a fundamental difference there is a return on private sector investment (coughs) excuse me there is a return on private sector investment over time but there isn't on uh investing in government bonds um and so savings which have been Taken out of the system totally, have uh, you know? There is no, there is, there is absolutely nothing to show for it at the end of the day. They have been destroyed because they're not going to get repaid. That is for sure.
1: A lot of people uh, speculate. They are not uh, conversant with economics. Generally, they they don't quite know how to grasp uh, potential answers. But why uh, the cycles of boom and bust that seem to dominate? Um, our daily lives, uh, why they have to happen in, in the first place, and why we don't have, uh, you know, to coin a phrase, a steady state uh, e- economy. Why things have to be in such in such flux? Why something that was designed, money was designed merely as a medium of exchange, has come to sort of dominate everything, and its movements rack every aspect of life across the entire planet. Why that has to be the case? And uh, you know, perhaps you could address that.
0: Well, it's I mean, it's it's really the if you like the desire um, to uh, get the economy growing um, by monetary means. And the lowering interest rates uh, encourages um, uh, businesses and entrepreneurs uh, to go out and um, borrow money in order to expand the, the, their businesses. Um, but the problem is. Arises uh, when um, they actually do that and they find that the other resources necessary for expanding their business, which are basically raw materials, um, savings themselves, um, you know, this is a savings replacement, but raw materials, savings, and also the labor, um, uh, the labor in order, to, you know, the, the people you employ in order to produce more. They are not released by the process because all that happens is that the consumer sees easy money so he doesn't increase his savings. What he does is he continues to spend and he probably on the margin goes and borrows some cheap money in order to spend a bit more. So the result is that, uh, you know, at the consumption end of things, uh, that continues just as it did before, and it doesn't release the resources for um, the expansion of businesses. And the result is that prices start rising. So, um, you know, it's it's a very, very simple factor. Um, You know, if you don't release the resources, the physical resources, any amount of um, producing money is not going to achieve anything all it does is it distorts the economy and um, inevitably um, when businessmen realize that they have made a mistake they find that uh, they you know the models that they put together aren't working because the cost inputs have been uh, underestimated for example uh, then under those circumstances they start sort of thinking well we've got to cut our Uh, investment here because we obviously made it under a false assumption the result is that um, you know interest rates will have risen um, uh, because inflation is rising Uh, and uh, the businessman then at that stage when he starts cutting that starts correcting if you like the the, the false boom that was created by uh, the excess money in the first place um, but then uh, governments don't like to see that you know the downside of the of, of the recession the downside of the boom it's a cleansing process if you mm-hmm. like um, but so was, but governments don't like to see that because obviously you know rising unemployment and all the rest of it basically means a discontented electorate uh, and so they they try and stop it by chucking more more money at it. And the result is that you get these cycles of boom and bust getting just more and more um, unstable over time. And that's the, the culmination of that process. Um, as all the debt, you know, the, the amount of debt in the economy increases and increases and increases over these cycles. And uh, we got to that point in 2008, where suddenly the whole thing started falling over. And the
1: government, particularly in this country, won't even use the R word, recession, you know, <laughs> no, it's got, they no. just refuse to do it. It's just like, what, what's the phrase I like? Uh, negative growth. You a know, it's like, growth, can't, you, know. Can't, you, can't you just call it what it is? And, you know, if someone's like, say, oh, well, you know, um, I lost my job, a house is being repossessed. Uh, we're only eating one meal a day, but the government says there's no recession. So there isn't one.
0: Yes, but I mean, the the, the government is, 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 is always very good at calling a spade a, a, a gardening implement. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's why the Ministry for the Sick is called the Minister of Health. You know? <laughs> and, the, and, and the Minister for War is actually called uh, you know, the Minister of Defence. But anyway.
1: <laughs> well, the idea of economic growth, and this is something that just um, makes me want to throw the radio across the room when I hear it, is this is a, sort of a mantra that has become that, a growing economy is the only acceptable one. You know, it's kind of thinking of my comment earlier about trying to have, have a steady state economy and you know, sort of something that uh, might be a bit boring, but actually it works for you know the majority of people. And but perpetual economic growth, no matter how much it is supposedly essential, it is just not possible. And we see that anyway. And I think the pursuit of it um, is actually quite destructive.
0: Yes, I think. Um, I, I think we've we've sort of covered that from the monetary end. I mean, mm. um, I, I, I hope that I've explained um, reasonably clearly that all GDP is, is growth of the amount of money in mm-hmm. the economy, not the quality, if you like, of what's actually going on. Um, the whole idea, the whole concept of economic growth, I think, Actually, does revolve round uh, the statistical approach, looking at things like GDP and saying, well, um, you know, if we can, if if um, the GDP number increases, then surely that means that the economy is growing. It doesn't at all. Um, uh, and von Mises uh, described it a bit differently. He said that an economy progresses, mm. and I think that's that's um, how I like to see it. If you if you imagine a sound money situation. Um, in other words, a situation where um, the amount of money in the economy doesn't change at all. Um, at the end of a year, um, your GDP has got to be, guess what, exactly the same. It must be because it's a money quantity. Yeah. Um, uh, but meanwhile, it would be totally wrong to think that over the course of the year, nothing has actually happened in the economy. It has. I mean, it progresses to a greater or lesser degree um you will find at the end of a year that um there will have been improvements in products you will have found that um, uh, entrepreneurs will have found cheaper ways to make existing products um, and so you will find that at the end of the year prices will be down a little bit which means that you can afford to buy a bit more your wages probably won't have fallen. Uh, they should have fallen because the purchasing power of them have, has effectively risen a little bit um, and uh, generally um, yeah, the consumer is pretty well off under those circumstances. The entrepreneurs, um, they're I think sort of fairly, am- fairly ambivalent about it. What they want is they want sort of stability. Um, they want economic stability because that allows them to plan something, execute it and uh, uh, benefit from the rewards large companies which um are perhaps less entrepreneurial but more establishment don't actually like that environment because it means they've got to compete mm. because price you know if prices tend to tend to fall well that's not much fun for them because they haven't got the imagination if you like they, you know they feel they're established they feel that uh, they own that market as it were and uh they don't like the idea of someone else muscling in and producing something which is cheaper so um, You know, they're the people who really don't like sound money along with governments, which is why you have this unholy alliance of large companies and governments trying to fix things. Um, Large companies saying that, uh, well, of course, um, you know, we will only manufacture in Greece if the currency goes down and cheapens the labor to the point where it makes sense for us. I mean, it's absolute rubbish. That's a temporary, a very temporary gain, if you like, which, which gets expunged very, very quickly.
1: Well, you see this um, unholy alliance, as you refer to it, in, in the states, particularly with a revolving door between government, banks, and corporations, uh, in terms of personnel, and it really is one entity um, in, in many ways.
0: Yes, it is, and uh, of course, the the whole of the political um, uh, election process uh, involves uh, those three elements, and they're all sort of tied together, if you like, working towards there, you know, uh, a common objective.
1: Now, a lot of the Concepts that uh, you've been talking about regarding alternatives to the way things are done, uh, actual or kind of or theoretical, hinge on the concept of sound money. Um, so basically, just if people are not aware, it's quite different to what we have today. The sound money is basically money backed by something of value.
0: Yes. Um, historically, I mean, the, the, the what determines money has always been selected by people, uh, people dividing their labour. Um, and uh, as a result of the division of labour um, uh, having to rely on others for the provision of goods for which they would swap their own goods. And money, of course, um, is the important lubricant whereby uh, you do that. And the selection of money has come really from that social activity. And the one thing that has sort of stayed with us throughout all those um, Millennia, really, the two things have really been gold and silver. Mm. Uh, Gold, gold, predominantly, is the high, higher value money, uh, because it was less, you know, it was less, um, uh, 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 less abundant, Um, and um, you know that is that was replaced uh, by fiat money, money, if you like, by law, um, where governments then took over the process and effectively have a monopoly. On what you use as money. You can still go out and barter something, you know, one for another, but everything has to be reduced back to money. I mean, if you barter one thing for another, you're going to, you know, and you don't declare it in your income mm-hmm. tax return, then, uh, you know, you find that the inland revenue are on your back. Um, so, as far as government is concerned, everything is in the paper money. And they have done everything they can to persuade us that this money is more, is worth more than the paper that it's printed on. Um, and so um, so really, if we return to sound money, there is only one thing that, or possibly two things that are going to represent sound money. And that's gold and silver.
1: Yeah. I mean, anyone who's listened to um, our conversation will be saying, OK, guys, I get it. The world economy is a basket case. Where is this going? What are we going to do? And that's basically what it boils down to. And also worth pointing out, I think that historically all fiat, all unbacked, all paper money systems have failed eventually. And the the
0: idea that this will not happen this time is is a fallacy. This time it's different. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, it's amazing. I mean, we've all been educated um, in uh, sort of modern Keynesian um, economics, which actually isn't economics at all. Um, But we accept that that this is economics. It's it's totally fallacious. And, um, you know, we're sort of... Rather like the Hans, was it Hans Christian Andersen who wrote the fairy tale about the, the emperor who wore no clothes? Mm. You know, we just don't notice that the emperor's got no clothes on. You know, we 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 see what we want to see. Um, the the future um, once these problems are fully exposed it's going to be very different and that comes back to the point that you made right at the start of this interview uh about 2008 Mm. it's actually a major major event rather like earthquakes you know it's it was a big earthquake but um there's more to come
1: well people are probably asking themselves again they've said right we get it um you know trouble ahead choppy waters uh things are going to get bad before they get worse before they get better rather what can I do? Individuals, I think, feel certainly in my conversations with people from day to day, they feel rather helpless that they're just, you know, um, vulnerable to, you know, all these economic shocks and there's nothing they can do to protect themselves or improve their position. Um, starting with getting out of debt, which I always tell people uh, they should make their priority. Um, we've talked about gold and silver. And again, I talk to individuals about this, you know, the checkout girl at the supermarket, guy in the petrol station, anyone who'll listen. And for most people, the idea of sound money having some relevance and reality in their everyday lives is, is, is esoteric at best. It's, it's just seen as bizarre. Um, but there are alternatives to just sitting around and having your savings destroyed and your economic future going up in smoke at the hands of others.
0: Well, yes, it's difficult to see what they are. I mean, <laughs> Uh, if, if, for start, let's 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 take money. Um, mm-hmm. You go to a portfolio manager, and the portfolio manager will come up with a sort of asset allocation which he thinks might suit your particular circumstances. Now, um, his idea of a risk-free investment is cash on deposit at a quality bank, but we know that cash on deposit is going to pay you very little and is going to pay you less than the rate of inflation. So immediately, the risk-free uh, portfolio investment uh, is to lose money. Mm. And if you go from there, um, what are the asset classes? I mean, I suppose you talk about stocks and shares. Um, now, the value of stocks and shares depends on interest rates, because that is what they're measured by. So I put it Simply if b p pays a dividend of three percent and you 're only getting half a percent at the bank, then obviously uh you're probably going to um, want to hold b p rather than um, leave your money in the bank. I mean, you know, once you take into account the extra risk of owning shares in a company, which can go up or down uh, compared with the stability of money, which is going down at the bank. But at least if you put in 100 pounds, you get 100 pounds back sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he moves into thing. Then, then he might recommend things like property um, and, you know, property um, bricks and mortar and all that stuff. I mean, we, we all like to have, own the roof over our head and so on. We feel that it's a stable thing. But that's a market which is priced on the back of um, borrowed money. I mean, mm. the, the, you know, if you took more mortgages away and then said, OK, what, at what price is the market, the residential property market, going to clear? I don't know what the answer would be, but I would have thought that it would be probably, let's take a guess, half the current level? The third you know because <clears throat> yeah. the whole pricing of the market does depend on the availability of mortgage finance um so there again you've got you know the, the risks there at which um you know if you get the sort of economic instability of um, bank crises government spending borrowing crises and all the rest of it um you know it's not a clear-cut case um if you go to the same portfolio manager and say well commodities you might say well um yeah commodities um I don't know very much about commodities, but all I can say is that, um, for example, China seems to be buying um, base metals and so on. So perhaps that might be a, um, you know, a long term investment. But I wouldn't have too much in it for the very simple reason that um, it's very, very risky. Um, And then if you say to him, well, how about um, gold and silver? He will say something like, well, I don't really follow gold and silver and I don't really understand what they're about. Mm. Guess why? Because he was probably um, he probably came out of a university with an economics degree, um, <clears throat> which never even mentions gold and silver. Um, where the assumption is that we have moved away from um, the the iniquities, if you like, of a metallic standard, and we have something more modern and better. You know, so he's yes. not going to he's not going to understand the argument either. So this is actually very difficult. So all you're, you're left with, I think, is looking after your own affairs um, and taking the trouble to understand where the whole thing is going wrong. And I think that's very, very difficult for a lot of people.
1: I think that's probably an extremely sage advice on which to conclude. I will just say that for my part, and I hope the uh, Inland Revenue are not listening. That I <laughs> I piled in with everything I have in the entire world into gold and silver um, ten years ago, and I'm glad I did.
0: Well, I you were very prescient, Greg. That's all I can say. <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, you would be. You, th- there are very very few people who did that. It's, it's it's interesting. Sorry, if I can just say one final. Of course. Word. I think I think when uh, Gordon Brown sold. Um, the gold I mean if there was there was no doubt that from an Austrian perspective we could see that that marked um, a reverse bubble if you like the
1: brown bottom
0: uh, yeah it's the reverse of a bubble whatever that is mm-hmm. um, and uh, that certainly um, for, for anyone who understood Austrian uh, economics was the simple conclusion of that action um, since then uh, the gold price has gone up and up um, and it's had a fairly constant um, uh, rise o- o- over time, uh, and I think in every year it has gone up in virtually every currency, every paper currency uh, since uh, 2000. Um, and um, the portfolio interest has been very, very low. Uh, the average portfolio exposure, I think, works out at something like three quarters of 1%, in spite of the fact that gold has gone up sixfold. Mm. Uh, in that time so nobody's really bought it yet uh and uh, we're now in the situation i think where central banks um you know they've seen the error of their ways they say well oh dear oh dear we can't sell this because um you know we might need it for a rainy day <coughs> which <laughs> which uh you know puts the light to keynesian economics but that's in a in a, in a sense um uh, the conclusion we can come to from central bank's actions, but then you've also got the problem now that the Asian countries, um, led by China, are all acquiring gold. Hmm. I mean, e- even even Iran uh, uh, bought gold last year and and was very happy to announce it. Uh, India as well, though they're trying to stop, um, or rather, they're trying to tax their citizens buying gold uh, to a greater extent now. Yes. But uh, this leaves um, the Western central banks with a real dilemma because they have sold a lot of their gold. Um, They refuse to have their gold holdings um, uh, verified um, publicly. Uh, And the result is that we suspect that uh, the level of gold holdings, uh, which is actually reflected in the tables produced by um, the World Gold Council, is... overstates the holdings of, uh, Mm -hmm. say, America and uh, probably uh, quite a number of the European um, uh, central banks, Um, while at the same time, uh, China, India, Iran, Russia, um, the various stands um, have all been accumulating gold and actually could come out with paper currencies which work for their own internal settlement to the exclusion of the dollar mm-hmm. and the euro and sterling. Now, that is a very interesting concept. And if you think that, um, I mean, the big power that, that uh, the Americans have had over global trade is that uh, with the dollar as the international settlement medium, every trade deal that isn't done for cash goes through the banking system in New York. Mm. And that gives them an enormous amount of intelligence and control over what's going on. Um, It also allows them to expand their money supply abroad, uh, reap the benefits at home without it appearing appearing effectively on the books. So um, they've utilized that very, very effectively. It looks like they're going to be losing that over the next four or five years. Um, And if that's the case, then there's a whole new range of consequences which I would have thought would take another hour and 20 minutes. So we'll stop
1: there. (laughs) Well, bottom line basically is, uh, you know, if you're in the UK, stop listening to Bloody Money Box on Radio Radio 4 or whatever the equivalent is in your home country. And as you said, uh, basically inform yourself about uh, where things have come from, where they are, where they're going. Uh, Your website is uh, financeandeconomics.org yeah uh, people can go there and find out a bit more about you and your work is there anywhere else that you'd like to point people to
0: well yes i i, I write most of my articles now um on the gold money uh foundation website so if you go to uh, www.goldmoney i can't remember the rest of it actually hold on well, oh, you, you, if you, you google, google gold google, money you find it yeah gold. it's gold money it's goldmoney.com yep. yes um and that was set up by James Turk, um, who's a good friend of mine. Um, and I publish a weekly article, a short article on, on on that, which then gets sort of circulated round. But if you want, you know, the, that's um, probably the best place to pick up my articles at the moment.
1: OK, Alastair MacLeod, thank you very, very much for joining us today on com.
0: Very much my pleasure. Thank you, Greg.
1: Well, that's it for this time. Um, Check out financeandeconomics.org for more information about Alistair and his work. And also have a look at goldmoney.com, where you'll find numerous articles by him. And on both sites, of course, you'll find links to other relevant articles and interviews on the web. I'm Greg Moffat. You've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. Until next time, goodbye.